All right, so uh, many of you know, man, my parents are here today. Uh, they, they, they'll, they can add some commentary to this later on. Uh, but growing up, uh, Galilee Christian Church in Jackson, Georgia, uh, they were big supporters of church camp. Went to North Georgia Christian Camp and fell in love with this place. And this camp, which is literally uh, on the side of a mountain in the foothills, of, of the Appalachians in Clarksville, Georgia. It's one of those places where you're walking up a hill, you're walking down a hill, and we might find a little, a little level spot every now and again. Spent summer after summer after summer up there. I found out that in, in, in the Sykes farm, in the economy of, of Dennis and Sharon Sykes, that I, I, if, if I wanted my best opportunity to get out of work was to ask them to do something related to the church. Right, and so that might have been what spurred me on to, to really and truly want to go to camp. And so every summer, hey, can I go to as many weeks of church camp as possible? And I, I went there. And, and you who have experienced church camp, man, you, you know some of the spiritual highs that you experience there. Like, it's just you. The world is, is not a part of it. Like, you're, you're, you're blocked from the world. Uh, your siblings aren't there because, let's be real, your siblings are usually some of your biggest temptations in life as a kid, and so you just get to, to go up there and learn about God, and you get to just do all the church camp things, but every single week had this in common. It came to an end. You had to go back home, and I remember time and time again, man, I'm, I'm coming off this, this spiritual high, being at church camp, and I'm super motivated, and I'm super pumped up, and like, I'm going to get back, and I'm going to rock it, man. Like, I'm going to get back, and I'm not going to sin anymore. Okay, I, I'm going I'm to get back and, and I'm going to change my high school. I'm going to change all that stuff. Like, it's just, it, it, I, this is the feeling that you have. And of course, you sleep because you're so tired. And my dad's already had to come to you. You sleep because you're tired coming home. <laughs> right? And then you get there and there's like this brother that does something. Right? And I'm like, home 10 minutes and I've already fallen into the trap of you know being mad at him and yelling and arguing and doing the things that he would always tempt me and bait me and lure me into I would make it a whole 10 minutes off of this this spiritual high before I'm down here again right back in the rut and there's this cycle that often happens in life and it looks very similar to, to what I'm talking about right there. Where we experience God, there, there's, there's some miracle, there's some event, there's an answered prayer. Maybe it's an amazing quiet time that you had. And, and you're just, you're super motivated, you're super pumped. You're like, yes, God, we got this. And then shortly following that, there's a something. There's a thing that distracts us from the moment. Well, good news, Jesus experienced this very thing. So, so we're not alone. In, in, in Matthew chapter 3, there's this, there's this moment where Jesus leaves Galilee and he goes down to the Jordan River. He finds his cousin. 
His cousin happens to be John the baptizer. He's the guy that was sent to prepare the way. And Jesus goes down to him and he says, hey man, I am here to be baptized by you. And John's like, no, 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 no. You're the Messiah. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. The, the Bible, the Old Testament, the thing that we haven't even written yet, but the old people that used to say things hundreds of years ago, they said that this has to happen in this order. And John's like, okay. And so they go down into the Jordan River. And, and I love the, the scene and the passion. Like, I think this is the, the best version of baptism. You know, we're accustomed to the whole, you know, standing behind the person, taking their hand, and taking it up here, and throwing them down. And I get the symbolism. I trust me, I'm not making fun of it. You old man raises new life, old thing. I get that. Right? But I love the passion. If you don't remember this, like John just goes in and he does the cousin dunk. Right? It's like, man, we're cousins, and this is my one opportunity. And he just like, kaboom, and then raises up. It's very similar to what Caleb did a couple years ago. Right? <laughs> Where there's like the splashing of water that comes out, you know. And, and, and so John baptizes him, he lifts him up, and he comes up out of the water. The heavens open. The dove descends upon the shoulder. And there's this voice. This is my beloved son. With him, I am well pleased. Now, before we actually move forward, I want to just point something out. Jesus hadn't done anything. I mean, like he, he, he was in the temple at 12 years old. He just, you know, didn't disobey his mom. He was doing what his guy, what, what his, earthly, his heavenly father told him to do. He was there. He was doing his thing. He goes home. We don't hear from him until it's Thursday. And God... Holy Spirit descends upon him and says, this is my son. He hasn't served yet. His ministry hasn't even started. But what a moment, right? Like we love to hear the praise from our parents. Our parents can be our biggest cheerleaders. There's God looking at his son. I am pleased. But then, Jesus walks out of the river and goes into the wilderness. Here's the crazy thing. He's led by the Holy Spirit. Part of the very nature of who he is leads him out into the wilderness for the purpose of being tempted by the devil. We're going to read more about that in just a second. Today, now I pray. I've been, I've been looking forward to this. I look forward to all of them, but I've been looking forward to this. I've prayed and I am hoping that, that when you walk out of those doors, you have a better grasp on how Satan works according to the Bible. Because we all believe he's real. We've all faced the temptations. How does Satan work? Well, the Bible tells us how he works. And so we're going to figure out his schemes. Because here's the thing. Following Jesus is hard. All right? I mean, it's, it's not the easiest thing. we got great moments, but, but then there's the rest of the moments. And, and, and this world is full of distractions that trip us up. Because most of us, man, we're pretty good people, especially here, you know, in the South. I mean, we're just good. We're good people. Y'all are good people. And we want to live good lives. And we want to be nice to one another. And we want to, we, we want to practice Southern hospitality and all that good stuff. And, but following Jesus is hard. And life, let's be honest, would be great if God could just go ahead and get rid of the devil. Like, just let's get, go ahead and get rid of him. I mean, life would be a whole lot easier. Well, that's coming. 
Right? That's called eternal life. That's called heaven. But the truth of the matter is, God has granted and allowed Satan to have some power. He's got some dominion over this earth, and God allows him to tempt us, to trip us up, to distract us from following him. And here's the thing about temptation. You should probably write this one down. It's tempting. It's it's luring. There's a craving that comes with it. It's a desire. And then here's the other thing about it. What tempts you may not tempt me, and what tempts me may not tempt you. It's just how we're wired. But here's the truth. Spiritual warfare is real, and Satan, as crafty as he is, He's still limited, and his power is limited. And if we can understand spiritual warfare as Jesus understood it and as he modeled it, we're going to have a leg up on this thing that we try to live called life as we try to become like Jesus in all that we do. So let's look, and the first thing we need to know is how does Satan work, all right? So let's, let's jump in. Well, first off, yeah, John 10, 10 tells us this, right? Like, like, this is Jesus. He's talking a lot. And he says this, and he's talking about, if you don't know who the thief is, he's talking about the devil. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Notice the contrast. One wants to steal wants to kill, and wants to destroy. The other wants you to have life and have it abundantly. The devil is here to steal. It's here to kill you. And this is not hyperbole. This, 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 this is not Jesus using you know, the language and exaggerating here. With the limited power that Satan has on her, earth, his desire is to keep as many people out of heaven as possible. Misery, we've heard it, loves company. And Satan knows. I mean, Revelation tells us he's already received the death blow to the head. Satan knows the battle is over. But there's still time on the clock. He knows the outcome. And so you know what his goal is? His goal is to take as many people as possible with him into eternity. Is American Christians all comfortable Oftentimes apathetic. I don't think we take this serious. The thief, Satan, comes only to steal your life from Jesus. He comes only to kill any hope that you have in Jesus. He comes to destroy your eternal inheritance. That's the only reason he's here. That's the only reason that he even exists, is to attack you. And so Jesus is going to show us how to avoid giving in to the schemes of Satan. And we'll see in just a minute, they're that very thing. They are his schemes. So, our story from the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus just came up out of the water. God just spoke to him. 
Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these I give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now, most of us have heard this passage. We've heard it preached. We've heard it taught in, in classes. And, and, and here's the thing. We, we always kind of land and focus on the fact that, that Jesus' counter to Satan's schemes is Scripture. Right? And that's the obvious thing. And, and so we'll, we'll kind of land there in, in just a minute. But here's the thing. As I've gotten older, I love spending time in the Word of God. Well, like when I was younger, like I, I prepared and I did the stuff that I had to do to do the things that I had to do for the people that I had to do the things for, right? But as I've gotten older, man, I, I love the Word of God. I love being in the Word of God. I, I love learning new things. Here's the thing about American Christianity. I land here a lot. I go ahead and tell you this. I'll land here a lot again next week as we get into uh, the Sermon on the Mount, too. Uh, I'm not attacking American Christianity, but it has created a culture that I do not think is the healthiest. So here's the thing about American Christianity. We love knowledge. We love to show up to church, and we love to sit through a lesson. We love to sit through a sermon, and we need to learn a fact, a detail. Like we, we love that. We thrive on that. And in our church culture, we feel that if we learn a new fact, then we feel good about the lesson and, and that, that, that we sat through, and it was not a waste of time. Like, that's the culture that we have created within the church setting. It, it, it's all about the knowledge, and it's all about the facts. Mayher shall hashbacks, right? That's a real word. I'm not speaking in tongues right now. Mayor Shallow Hashbacks. Can you say it? You know what that is? Here's the thing you're going to take away today now that I've said this. This will be the one thing y'all remember. That's the longest word in the Bible. It's Isaiah's second son. It basically means spoiled, rotten child. That's what it means. <laughs> right? Or we can say something like, you know, ooh, uh, Ehud. That was a left-handed judge. And you're all sitting there and you're like, oh, I don't recall what the longest word in the Bible is. It's something funny, and now that you know that it's related to Isaiah, you kind of got an idea of where to look. And so you're going to walk out of here, and you're going to be like, hey, today wasn't a total waste because I actually learned something. You want to know why we love learning new things? 
because knowledge is easy. Knowledge does not require change. Knowledge rarely steps on our toes. Knowledge makes us feel as though we've accomplished something. And we love to sit. And please hear me. I, I, I can't state this enough because, because I'm going to get the email that I'm anti-knowledge and I'm anti-class and I'm anti-this and that. I'm not. Uh, please, uh, hear me. Knowledge is super important to the transformation that takes place. But in our culture, we have, we have, we have whittled Christianity down to learning new things, and that's it. We, we, we feel, because of our education system, that I take the knowledge that I have, I then will have some kind of test that I have to take in order to get into heaven. That's not how it works. Knowledge is the first step to application. And that's where we fall short in our, in our society, in our culture, is the application side. So here's my challenge to you. What if we took a different approach to God's Word? What if instead of reading and trying to memorize a verse, and I'm all about memorization, trust me. I, I think memorization is very important. But what if instead of reading and trying to memorize a verse every now and then, we let God's Word read us? This is the idea, church, behind our life groups. We do not do traditional lessons where a teacher prepares a lesson and shares it with the class for a reason. Our whole life group philosophy is all about this idea of allowing the inspired word of God to speak into your life, to read you and your life and where you are. To speak into your life about your next step of faith. <coughs> This is why we always ask the question, always, what stands out to you from this passage? We always ask that. Because here's the thing. I can sit here and I can read this story from Matthew 4 about Jesus going into the wilderness. I can read it today and I can read it tomorrow and I can read it the next day. And I can get three different things depending upon my vulnerability before the Lord and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to me. We want to know what is the Holy Spirit saying to you. And if a teacher is preparing a lesson, he's telling you what to think. He's telling you the facts. He's giving you the information instead of God's Word reading you. So let me challenge you. Just give this a try. Go back to the soaps that we did all last year. It was the very, this very premise. <coughs> Every time you encounter Scripture, if it's your personal quiet time, if it's in this room, if it's in life group, if it's listening to your favorite book, author, podcast, whatever, let God's word read you. Where are you? What are you going through? How does this speak to my life? Because here's the thing about moving forward with this topic of being in the wilderness. This is a critical step for you and I if we're going to learn how to avoid the schemes of Satan. 
Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It's popular around here. I use this often. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. All right, so we can spend a day preaching through this entire thing, but let me just kind of jump to the, to the highlights. Do not be conformed to this world. This word conformed, it's a construction term in, in the Greek. It, it has to do with, uh, uh, like, think of concrete. Right? If you've ever worked with concrete or if you've ever had concrete work done, you, you have to create a barrier. You have to create some type of form that the concrete then goes into, and the concrete is going to flow to the shape okay, of the form that has been created. Paul's saying to you and I, don't let the world shape the way you think. Problem is, we're in the world 24 hours a day. And we give the world access to our mind almost every single one of those waking hours. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. But we're to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Transformation in our life takes place as the way we think, by the way we process information is renewed. Here's the thing. You need to know this. If you don't hear anything else today, know this. Spiritual warfare takes place in our mind. Like, like, like that's what Satan is doing. He is attacking your mind. Your, your, your physical, your, 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 your feelings, your heart. He'll, he'll get those too. But he is attacking the mind and the way we process information. And so in this equation that, that, that Paul is giving us about transformation, something has to take the place of something else. We've already been formed, or we have the world, and the way the world thinks has access, and it has shaped our mind and the way we process information. Transformation takes place when we say, you know what, the world no longer has access to that, but i got to fill my mind with something else. What is it? God's Word is the most powerful thing on the planet. It is the most powerful resource that we have. To shape our mind. Look at what Jesus tells his disciples and the Jewish people who believed that he was the Messiah. John chapter 8. We, we used this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about Abraham. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The word abide. Like, like we, don't, we don't grasp this very well, I don't think, in the Greek. Uh, it, it's often used as remain, remain in me, and I will remain in you. The word abide is very relational in nature. If you think about the John 15, where Jesus gives the analogy of vine and branches, 
where he challenges his disciples on, on those, those last hours to abide in him or to remain in him as a branch is connected to, to the vine or the trunk, right? Have, have you ever gone and studied the intersection where you have the main trunk or the main vine and, and the, the branch comes off of it? That intersecting point of branch and vine is very hard to tell where one starts and the other begins. Right there where they meet. Where's the branch actually begin? I mean, we know the branch is way out here. We know it's six inches out. But where do they actually meet? That's what he is challenging. That's what abiding in looks like. That's the image that Jesus is creating. You don't know where one begins and where the other starts or ends or whatever. That's the relationship that we are to have with the Word of God. Where it reads our lives as much as we read it. And if you abide, this is you have this deep relationship in my word, you're truly my disciples. With this abiding in his word, he goes on to say, you're going to know the truth. You're going to have freedom. Because earlier, Jesus is teaching, and he talks about Satan. He's talking to the Pharisees. And he says this about the character of Satan. <clears throat> He's a liar. And he only speaks lies. And what's Satan's purpose on earth? To steal, to kill, and destroy. And so he's going to take whatever he can, and he's going to manipulate, and he's going to twist, and he's going to get you thinking. It's not that big a deal. It's not that bad. And Jesus is saying, you and I need to be abiding in his word. And when we do, we will know the truth, and it's going to set us free. All right, so here's what we've said so far. I didn't tell you this earlier. Let me say it right now. I pray this all the time. I pray it early. God, His Word, it's alive. It's active. Right? And it penetrates our life. Our transformation comes from the renewal of our mind. And how we process information should always be filtered through what God says about this. Okay? That, that's, that, that's how transformation comes from the renewal of our mind. How you and I process information. And it should always be filtered through what God says about it. So when I'm sitting down and, and I'm having a discussion, and there's a couple guys in the room that I meet with on a regular basis, and, and we sit down and we talk, you should never believe what I say just because I say it. You should always be willing to open up the Word of God and say, hey, Michael said this. Is that what God's Word really says? Let me find this out for myself. 
So we should always be willing to filter everything that is said through what God God says about his word. And then this last verse, we are to have a deep relationship in his word. Now, here's the thing about the word of God. It's the only weapon. It's the only offensive weapon that we have to fight. Have you ever thought about that? Like we, we throw the term out spiritual warfare, and we're going to read it here in just a second. We're going to talk about spiritual warfare. The only weapon where we get to go on the offense is the Word of God. And so if it's the only weapon, I think it's pretty important. Ephesians chapter 6. Again, preach a sermon on this right here. Verse 10, a final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in his dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. All right? I mean, Paul's making it clear. This right here, you guys going back and forth, the person that cuts you off today, the bad service you get, whatever, that, that's not who your enemy is. All right? your, your enemy is not flesh and blood. Spiritual warfare doesn't take place amongst us. It takes place amongst what the enemy is doing within us. Verse 13, therefore, since, you know, this is serious, put on every piece of God's armor, so that you will be able to resist the enemy in your time of evil. Then, after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news, so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on on salvation as your helmet, and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times, and on every occasion stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Now, again, I could spend an hour talking about this passage. The text is clear. The whole armor of God is needed to stand firm against all the schemes or strategies of the devil. Did you see that word? It's, It's just there. And so I'm not minimizing anything. I'm not, le- I'm not neglecting anything else in the text. But in this analogy that Paul uses, everything that we are to put on is for defensive purposes. And the only offensive weapon is the Word of God. And I don't care what game you're playing. I don't care what competition you are engaging in. You've got to be somewhat savvy on offense if you're going to win. In warfare, no one has ever won a battle with defense only. Now, last night, NCAA tournament, I love college basketball. This past weekend is usually my my favorite sports weekend of the year. And I told the church leaders that my eyes were getting big. That's why I needed the TV as a monitor in my room, but the reality in my office. But the reality is, it's just so I can watch basketball when I'm up here during the month of March. Okay, don't tell that. Last night, 
there was a certain team playing that I liked. And at halftime, they had 10 point lead. And feeling pretty good about things. Um, they were beating the number one seed in the region, right? And they finished the half on fire. Man, I mean, they couldn't miss. They just like throwing it in the ocean, baby. I mean, they just put it up there. Everything they chunk in, it's going in. Went on the 17 point run, and you're just stoked, all right? And then the second half rolled around with a 10 point lead. This particular team shot a total of 12% from the field in the second half. <coughs> Their offense, to say the least, was inept. It's terrible, clumsy. I, I, and what happened? They got crushed. They got crushed. And, and, and the defense from said team was really good for most of the game. But the offense in the second half was not there. And as a result, you cannot win games without a combination of defense and offense. You have to have some of both. And in the second half, there was no offense. And you know what happened? Well, they've gone home. That's what happened. They're done. Season's over. We try to live our faith just like that. Very little offense. We only go on offense when we absolutely have to, but, but we would just prefer to have a defensive posture and just try to survive. Instead of looking at Satan and what's going on and saying, you know what? I'm now going on the offense because I have a weapon. George Washington. I, I know we think Bill Belichick said this, but check out your history. George Washington is credited with the adage, your best defense is a strong offense. You, you, you want your defense to be good? Be strong on offense. Go after the enemy. Get the enemy running. So if that's true, why then? If we know that, if we know that the word of God has been given to us, why is it such a struggle for us to spend time in it, knowing that the devil is trying to steal, kill, and destroy our lives? God's like, I've given you a weapon. You don't even use it that much. Oh, that's cool. You got an app that sends a little, you know, verse on it. And you read the verse and then you ran out the door. Or, or you listened to it on the way to work, but then you got distracted because you left the thing. You know, I, and I'm not knocking those things. I've got all, every bit of that stuff. I listen to stuff at my part-time job and, and, and I try to try to stay focused and sharpen myself. And, and learn. I, I use all those tools. Giving you this weapon to fight with. We become passive and we don't fight. So we know what our weapon is. No excuses. We know what our weapon is. Well, now, what if you also know the enemy's strategy? Well, wait a minute, that's a game changer. 
I mean, this does not deter the enemy from doing what the enemy does. But what if you also know what Satan's strategy is against you and how he's going to attack you? And I think it gives us an advantage, right? I mean, you, you're going into warfare, you, you use any sporting analogy, whatever. If I know the plays of the other team, if I know the personnel, if I know how they're going to do the things that they do, that gives me a leg up. What if we started living that way? What if we walked out of here knowing how Satan's going to attack us the next time Satan attacks us? 1 John 2. He's writing to churches and Christians everywhere. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure. A craving for everything we see and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. Now, church, I'm going to tell you right now, when he says do not love the world, he's talking about the pattern of this world that we have been exposed to for our entire life. It's not the same use of the word world in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. It, it, it's, it's not the same. He is specifically talking about what Satan and his dominion over this earth, and he says some things here. The, the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, pride in our achievements, and, and possession. So this is how Satan tempts us. Satan, Satan tempts with a craving for physical pleasure. This is all about how you feel. You, the world says, deserve to feel how you want to feel. Oh, you don't like your gender? No problem. You don't like the way you were brought into and created by the author of life? You want to be something? No problem. You feel the way you want to feel. That, that's what the world says to us. You don't have to say no to self. Man, you want that cookie? Get that cookie. If that second scoop, third scoop, third bowl of ice cream makes you cope with whatever it is you're going with, and it makes you feel better for a, a moment, go ahead. You like that image you saw on the screen? You like that video you saw on the screen? It makes you feel good? Watch it. That drink would calm your nerves? Drink it. Go for it. It's exactly what John is saying. And then he says there's a craving for everything we see. Oh, th this is a toast that we're on right here, right? That, that next possession, whatever, whatever it is I see, that's going to satisfy me, right? Man, those shoes. That, that, that's, that's not just going to meet a need, but that's going to make me feel good. That, that dress, that outfit, that car, that new DeWalt Niger sauce. 
with the patient here, I'm telling you right now, the other day I dreamed about a nuclear walk with Microsoft. My father, I'm not kidding. I was dreaming about it. I woke up, old man. I'm dreaming about it. My father-in-law and I were working out at my house, and somehow I don't know how, but he actually—I'm not saying he did, he did it on purpose—but somehow this miter saw that I currently have, which is an old pawn shop DeWalt miter saw, so I, I deserve it, right? Because I bought this at a pawn shop many, many years ago. It somehow fell off the table and cracked and broke, and I'm like, "That's weird, man." I was just dreaming about this last night. Now this thing happened so. <laughs> the craving for everything we see <coughs> because the possession will satisfy you. How's the world operate? Pride in our achievements and possessions. I love Joby Martin. He describes it this way. The pride of life is a deep desire to be something. It's about power. It's about position. About comparison, ego, and insecurity about the applause of man over the applause of God. The pride of life is that deep desire to prove all the haters wrong and make something impressive out of yourself, regardless of who you have to walk over to get there. The pride of life, you ready for it? The pride of life is all about retweets. It's all about likes. It's all about the thumbs up. It's about craving that, that blue check next to my name. I want people to notice me. I want people to like me. That's the pride of life. So church, that's the schemes of Satan. That's how he operates. Now that's, that's what he does. He came to steal, to kill, destroy. That's why he came. But this is, this is how he's going to get you. These three things. Go back and look at Matthew chapter 4. The first temptation. If you are the Son of God, first off, there's a lesson there. He's challenging the identity of Jesus. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become little girls. Physical question. You're hungry. Take care of how you feel. You came out here to be tested. It's, it's just bread. It's no big deal. Go ahead. See how Satan tripped him up? Or tried to trip him up? Look at the second one. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. This is pride in our achievements. You are the Son of God. Look who you are, and look who you have working for you. You got angels. Man, you just throw yourself down. The angels are going to swoop down and take care of you before you even hit the ground. Because you are who you say you are. Pride. In our achievements. And then the third one. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Craving for everything you see. Look, Jesus, you can have it all right now. You can trade the cross for the crown right now. Bow down and worship me. And Jesus, like, I know your game. I know your schemes. Get out of here. 
So, church, not only do you know how to fight off the devil, but you got a sword. It's there. You don't have to have seminary degrees. You don't have to understand substitutionary atonement. You don't have to have all the answers of the beast or the seven seals or all the other stuff. You don't have to have that stuff. You just have to have the time to make it a problem. To spend time in the Word and let the Word read you. It's not coming up on the screen, but John 8 says, anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God. The next sentence is, but you don't listen because you don't listening today. Not, not to Michael. All right. I don't care if you listen to me. Are you listening to God? Because anyone who belongs to God listens gladly to the words of God. So as we close out, our men are going to come forward. I just want you to read these words. We're going to take communion in just a second. This is the rest of this Hebrews text. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. That's what's going to happen when you start getting into this thing, church. That's what happens when you start letting it read you. Instead of just checking a list, checking a box of, did I have my quiet time today? Yeah, I have my quiet time today. When we actually sit down and we actually be vulnerable before the Lord, when, when, when our life group leaders say, hey, what is standing out to you in this passage? This is what's happening. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. Verse 14, so then since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. Don't miss that, please. He understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of them. He faced the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy. We will find grace to help us when we need it. So this morning, I want us to take communion together as a family. And our guys are going to go ahead and pass this out to you. And we're going to come boldly together before the throne. So take what they give you and hold it for just a second. And we're going to ask for his mercy. And you know what? When we ask for his mercy, we're going to find, we're going to find his grace. 
to help us when we need it most. Because here's the thing. I don't know what your temptation is. I don't know what insecurity you're dealing with. I don't know what, what, what obstacle is there for you right now. And I don't have to know. As a matter of fact, I'm good when I know. But God wants to know. And, and, and maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, you know what, I know the sword exists and I was there, but I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I'm not ready to pick it up and fight back. Maybe that's what we need to be asking for. Not a spirit of fear, not a spirit of being timid, but a spirit of boldness, ready to go out. For the Word of God is alive and it's powerful. As they finish up, Paul wrote to the church at Rome these words, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Church, you're holding the very proof of that in your hands. While it's not the actual physical body and blood of Jesus, it represents what he did. Since he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us from, from whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. That's what we're doing. We're remembering that. And he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything separate us from Christ's love? This is proof. The answer is no. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours <coughs> through Christ who loves. Father God, thank you for sending your son and dying on the cross to take our place. You love us that much. Father, I, I pray that as we remember your love and that there's nothing in our past that separates us from that. Father, I pray that that spurs us to walk out of here knowing and understanding the schemes of Satan and not giving him a foothold. Thank you for your love. God, may we honor you. May we honor you now in how we fight. Jesus said, this is my body. Broke it and passed it. He said, Take it. And then he said, This cup represents the blood that washes away sins. 